to the From Way Downtown podcast. This is Indy Star Pacers editor Nat Newell here, of course, with our Pacers insider Dustin Dopierak. Uh, he, Dustin, is just getting back uh, from writing about Tyrese Halliburton's return, uh, or almost certain return, based on what was said today at practice uh, for the Celtics on Tuesday. Uh, real quick, Dustin, just take us through what was said at practice, what Halliburton said, and what uh, people should expect going forward with his after his hamstring injury. Yeah, I mean, he says he feels pretty optimistic. He wants to, you know, he obviously wants to see how he feels in the morning. Um, he says that'll kind of dictate whether he's really available. But there's a good bit of optimism. Um, he practiced today. He actually practiced more than most of the guys because, I mean, they're not on his schedule. Uh, you know, they've certainly just played, you know, four games in six days uh, at home and, and some tough ones, obviously, a, a brutally physical game yesterday uh, against Memphis. And, you know, they're coming off of, uh, you know, three games in four days and three wins in four days. So they didn't need a whole day of practice today. Uh, he did. Um, so he was apparently he, he did like about a 20 minute scrimmage beforehand, uh, with some of the guys that don't get a lot of minutes. I presume that means Jarris Walker. I presume that means James Johnson. Also, uh, some of the interns, player personnel guys, basically all the guys that we see practicing with these dudes, which I presume probably means Gennaro Pargo, which definitely means Connor McCaffrey. Um, you know, the, the kind of practice player guys they've got hanging around, um, you know, just anybody they could make run around, you know, apparently. And Rick Harlow said he looked pretty good. He came, came through pretty well after that. Um, but obviously, again, he was making good progress up until Portland. Um, and so we asked him about that, like, what, you know, what happened? Um, and he said, you know, I, I felt pretty good about it. And I was told, you know, I felt pretty good, like it wasn't going to get any worse. And he said, my, my body just didn't react the way I wanted it to. He's like, I, I felt pretty sore in the game. I, I felt really sore that night. I didn't really feel great afterwards. And we just kind of had to start again from square one uh, to get it working back to normal. So, you know, presumably it, it's, it, it, it sounds like it's good enough to go tomorrow. He's obviously pretty motivated to want to play this game. It's a national TV game. It's the Celtics. Um, Halliburton is sort of the sort of person who notices what games are on TV because he's just NBA obsessed and he watches these kinds of things and has a notion of how everybody's viewed. Um, and so it's definitely a game that he wants to play, had, circ- had circled on his calendar since, you know, the, the schedule came out in uh, August or whatever it was. And so, you know, or yeah, I think it was August. So he's hyped up for this and so he's going to give it a go. And so it's obviously the question of, all right, is he good now? Um, you know, and it sounds like it. It sounds like Carlisle thinks so. It sounds like he thinks so. Obviously, it's a hamstring. Uh, things can go wrong. Uh, you know, as, as Rick Carlisle said in the beginning of this process, you know, you want to nudge it along. You don't want to piss it off. Um, so the hope is that whatever they do doesn't make it angry, uh, you know, tomorrow and going forward. And so, I mean, it could happen. You don't, like, don't want to sit here and guarantee that you're not going to have the same conversation uh, on Wednesday as you were having last week. Um, you know, that's a sure thing. You know, I'm not the guy working with them, but it, it, they sound optimistic and positive and feel like they've, they've come to a point where they can trust it uh, to run him out there. I thought it was interesting that they, uh, they play him against Portland and then come out the next day or whenever. I can't remember exactly what the timing was, but before the next mm-hmm. game, they say he's going to miss more games. But it wasn't a setback. <laughs> right, seems- yeah. It seems like it was a setback to me. I think you make a good point that, you know, hamstrings are tricky and yeah. anything can set them off. Um, if you've mm-hmm. ever had a hamstring injury, you know, at any level, let alone an NBA player. Uh, sure. But what was your sort of reaction to that sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, splitting hairs um, sure. in terms of uh, uh, word choice? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what it is. It's splitting hairs. It's semantics. And so there's obviously, like, and and I think I noted this on Twitter, like, there's the, um, you know, you got to be 
take some level of humility into the discussion when you're not a doctor. Um, because, you know, I, I think logic, the, the logic way of putting it is like, okay, if he was playing and now he's not playing, then it's a setback. You know, like that's pretty definition yeah. the case. I mean, is that what you would, uh, you know, but is that medically true? You know, that I, I, I am not bold enough to say. Um, but like lo- logically, you know, just in, in terms of if you can play one day and you can't play the next day, um, and then you can't play again after that for a week, you have taken a step back. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, that, that's just, so it's just like, I am trying to maintain the humility of not calling it out, um, and calling it a lie because I, don't have a doctorate and I'm not working with this guy's hamstring and I can't say, okay, what would be defined as a setback or what would be defined as you just did this too early? You know, I mean, like Rick just said, it needed more time. I mean, like, you know, like, are they being dishonest? Are they not? I don't know. You know, but the bottom line is like, they have been, you know, careful. Uh, Like Rick was initially the first day he he said, it's not a setback. It's not a re-injury. The second day said it's not a re-injury. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's possible that their view is that he didn't actually make it worse, but it wasn't better enough. You know, like it's like almost like you'd really have to get into the weeds with an actual doctor who's actually working on it to get a, a real explanation of what's going on. So, you know, not going to go call them out and say that they're being dishonest, but um, there obviously are splitting hairs. They obviously are trying to be very, you know, Trying to be careful what they say, but they're also trying, you know, like careful what they say in a way is to not make any look they look bad, you know. So I don't know if anybody deserves to look bad. Um, so you know, like, you know, again, tough to say exactly, but um, if you're just looking at it in logical terms as opposed to having to, you know, apply that to I don't know a, a medical standard, um, then again, if you can play one day and then you feel really sore and hurt and then you can't play again for a week. Then you've taken it, you know, then on an illogical, you know, layman way of talking about it, you've taken a setback. So, yeah, it was before your your time. I think Rick Carlisle said that TJ Warren was uh, weeks, not months away from returning. And of course, he never returned. Um, So, I I think Rick might understandably be a little gun shy. And let's, this is something that, I mean, we had a Colts game, Zach Moss, I think it was Zach Moss, one of the running backs for the Colts got hurt, goes to the locker room, and we have got people on Twitter saying, you know what happened, why aren't you telling us? And it's like, you know, look, teams play with stuff on these injuries, of course they do, but guess what? Right. They might also actually not know what someone's injury is. So right. um, it's, it's like, like everyone wants a specific answer on stuff like this, and sometimes sure. they get in trouble when they try to give you what you want. And then right. you can sort of understand why they might be a little gun shy following. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, like to lift the curtain a little bit in terms of how this works generally between, you know, teams and reporters and what we know and when we know it, you know, I mean, usually uh, uh, in game, it's PR staff that we hear from, you know, so PR staff is obviously not the doctor, you know, the, like the PR staff usually talks to the doctors, the athletic trainers and says, Hey, what can I tell the media? You know? And like what you know to give them a sense of what's going on just a basic idea and that's when you always see you know this person's got a back and he's questionable or a knee and he's questionable or whatever like that's where we get this kind of yeah the the league has rules about what they're required to you know they're required to give out some information right exactly as well yeah yeah and so there's they have to do that and you know that's 
usually what we get. And then we talk to coaches and stuff like that. You know, like on, on an official basis, the people that we talk to are never people that have doctorates. And there's a reason for that, you know, <laughs> like that, like we, we are always having conversation there. Like what becomes public about an injury is two people who do not have doctorates talking about something that only somebody with a doctorate would really understand. You know, that's, that's kind of where we always are on these. And so that, that is what leads to maybe, I don't know, fogginess, disconnect, whatever you want to call it is just from the fact that like, People that understand how to work in the human body are never the ones that are speaking because there's privacy issues as far as that's concerned. And so there's things that like have to be disclosed, but they end up being disclosed by people who don't always have like a hundred percent grasp on it. And they're telling it to reporters who also, again, don't have a hundred percent grasp on it. If we did, we'd be doctors and we wouldn't be doing this job. <laughs> um, so, you know, like that's, that's, that's the thing. I mean, like that, that I think is the best way to explain why does all of this always seem foggy? Um, because it again is, is, it's, it's the product of conversations between people who are not schooled in this to where you have to be to truly explain what happened to somebody's body. And what do you, what's the impact of Halliburton coming back? Obviously they played pretty well, especially compared to last year without him. Um, I have continually told you to write a story saying they should trade him every after Clearly. they win without him. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. You don't usually agree with me. I don't. Um, yeah, I have not, I have not stepped out on that limb yet with you. No. Obviously, they're a better team with Halliburton than without him. What sure. kind of impact do you see him having now that he's back? Or yeah, I mean, I think it's that? just it's almost just you're you're you you just have different teams. You know, like it, it's just that they were a different team before Siakam. They're a different team with Siakam. Um, they were a different team before Siakam practiced than they are now. And now they're going to be a different team with a healthy Halliburton. I mean, it's just, it is a constant, um, period of flux with, I think Rick Carlisle has kind of embraced. I mean, he's sort of viewed this as a total reshuffling of the deck, um, and has looked, you know, basically try to figure out, okay, like this is what I've got now and this is what I'm going to have. And I have to figure out like where all, how all these other pieces fit, but also how certain parts that fit in the old machine fit in the new machine um, and, and how they can be enhanced or work differently. Um, so it's, it's really a fascinating time. And, and, and again, I don't think you're going to know how good they can be with both of these guys together for at least a couple games. Uh, I think they're just starting to figure out the group that they've had out there without Halliburton has just started to figure itself out and, and, and really did over the last three games look like a much better basketball team. And so now you're going to have a sense of Halliburton figuring out how Siakam works. And he started to, I think, in that first game, but he's going to get a better sense now. And those guys are obviously really high IQ basketball players, so they'll be able to figure it out relatively quickly. Um, but there will be all kinds of moving parts to this and figuring out, okay, like how does this guy fit, you know, with what you do next to when you have Siakam on the floor. And I think one of the things that's really stood out to me is just how he's changed the matchups, um, you know, so much. And he's allowed, you know, put certain guys in, in big advantage matchups. And I think one number um, that, you know, one set of numbers that jumps out to me is how much more Aaron Neesmith is rebounding. And the reason he's rebounding more is because he's not boxing out a power forward anymore. He's boxing out a small forward, <laughs> you know, and he can win those. Uh, and it's just like he, you know, he has been, um, you know, more than anybody else, he's been asked to punch above his weight. You know, he's been asked to punch above his weight for, you know, the last two seasons. And he's finally gets gets to punch his weight now. He gets to move back into his weight class. Um, and, like, you know, I mean, he has not had, you know, what you would call great rebounding numbers over the last two seasons. And it's not because he doesn't try. You know, I mean, like, there is a vertical element to rebounding. Everyone's like, well, it's just position and want to. 
Like, yes, but look, I'm five eight, okay? Like I understand I played basketball, you know, I, I didn't play basketball at any kind of high level, but like I was the type of guy that wanted to box somebody out and go rebound when I was playing pickup. And I know full well that there are rebounds you can't get because you're not tall enough to get them. Um, and so if you're, you know, when, Hallett, when you know, Neesmith is dealing with guys, he's guarding guys that are 6'11", there are rebounds he can't get. And so now that he's boxing out guys and defending guys that are his size, he can get rebounds. And that changes things. So, like, all of those pieces are starting to come together, and they're going to even more mesh when you bring Halliburton in, and everything works a little bit smoother. Um, and, and he's a little bit faster, and he has a certain amount of gravity um, as a scorer in and of himself. And so things are have been really starting to click over the last three games, and they can really, I think, take to another level when you add that, uh, a player with that kind of juice and that kind of capacity. But it's, it is, there's very much a moving parts situation, I think, still. Um, you know, figuring out, okay, when do you play Neesmith? When do you play Toppin? When do you play Nemhart? You know, when do you play, uh, when do you bring in McConnell? What does that look like? You know, when, when does it make sense, the most sense for Buddy Heald to be on the floor or for Benedict Matherin to be on the floor? When, when does Ben Shepard have to get out there? Can you find a, a, a path for Jairus Walker to get on the floor because you have to view him as part of this? Uh, you know, the long-term project and you see good enough things to, to like what he has to do. Um, you know, all of the, a lot of those pieces are still, you know, up in the air and, and they, you know, change spots when you bring Halliburton back into it. Um, but, you know, you're now, it, you know, once he's settled, you know, and, and once you know he's not going to go back out of the lineup, I mean, the fact that you've got two A-list players, you know, goes a long way. I mean, I think you've seen, you know, Siakam can be that real go get me a bucket every night guy. And, and that like, you know, his floor, even as a secondary score is 17, 18, 19 a night, you know, whereas, you know, with Matherin, you have had these, um, you know, big highs and lows that, that he's had some nights where he can go get you 30 and some nights where he has a hard time getting you 10. Um, you know, Siakam is a guy that you can depend on for 15 at least. And if you need him to get you 25 one night, he might be able to even against, you know, for instance, like, Memphis, I think, was a really good example. You know, you need a guy with length and of the ability to handle in traffic that can get into the paint and pull up and score and, you know, get above, you know, like be able to get down low enough to keep the handle around those big guys and then be able to rise above them and score over top of them. And Siakam can do both of those things. And that gives you an option that you you didn't have the first time when they played him. And that's why I think they went from, I want to say, like 34 in the paint to like 58. And that that was that that's a huge you know game changer as far as when they played Memphis the first time and the second time. In a lot of ways, I think Excuse the sorry. Oh, there we go. As always, our uh, our our correspondent Maxine, Maxine has thought Maxine uh, can uh, has to weigh in on the Pacers every time we do the podcast. That is Dustin's uh, dog, uh, Eagle, Maxine. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think you have to be. I mean, the, the Suns game on Friday uh, might have been the best win of the season for the Pacers. Uh, obviously, there's some other candidates in there. They're uh, a game and a half. Uh, uh, excuse me, two and a half up on Miami and Orlando. Their Pacers are currently sixth. Miami and Orlando are tied for uh, seventh. Um, so, and they're two games behind the, the Cavs. So nothing's like locked in, but it seems like they've settled in at a nice spot. And to do that when they haven't had Halliburton, have they come through this better than you expected? I guess is my question. Um, at least as well, certainly. I mean, I, I mean, I think also, you know, you went into this not thinking you'd have that extra week um, that, that that they would be without him. And so if you told me it's like it's not going to be six, it's going to be ten. Um, I, then, then I would say, yeah, this is definitely better, uh, better than I would have expected. Obviously, at the, at the start, I didn't know they were going to have Pascal Siakam. Um, that, you know, that was 
certainly up for discussion in the long term, but wasn't necessarily expected to happen in the middle of January as opposed to at the deadline. So, um, you know, uh, you know, obviously that changes things a lot, you know, that, that they weren't playing with Benedict Matherin as your potential leading scorer every night or Miles Turner. Um, you know, you had a guy step in there in the middle of it that was capable of being an all-NBA player and could be the best, the best player on a lot of teams. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think at the outset when Halliburton got hurt, I mean, I think the thing that we were trying to say was they just have to stay in that pack, that second-tier pack that's developed. If you view, you know, Boston, Milwaukee, and Philadelphia as the East first tier, um, then, you know, you, you look at Cleveland, New York, and, you know, the Pacers, uh, the Heat, and the Magic as the next tier, you know, basically. And, and they were sort of, they've all been sort of flipping around, um, you know, back and forth over the course of the season so far. Certainly you're going to see a little bit of separation in between there. Um, but, like, that group has clearly established itself as the second tier. You're starting to see teams after them fall off. Um, you know, right now the Pacers are five up on the Bulls for ninth, and that matters. They are seven and a half up on the Hawks for 10th, um, and they are eight up on the Nets for 11th. So that's their separation. That's their space between between being out of the postseason. That's how much of a cushion they have uh, have built with Halliburton out. So you bring him back, and so suddenly you're in a position where you have to feel good about being able to to keep pace. And even if you find him getting hurt again, uh, if you lose him somewhere else down the line, you, you have to feel, I think, still pretty good about your ability uh, to keep pace with the rest of this group and, and stay in there. And, you know, again, that gets you to, um, you know, what your goals were. And then everything else after that is great. You know, there's a lot of other possibilities. And certainly I think, you know, the, your your standard for success might be a little bit higher just because you invested in all NBA wing. But you've got to pay a lot of money the rest of this year. And then you've got to think about paying a lot of money uh, to extend. Um, but, you know, all, all the same, you went into this thinking you've just got to be a playoff team, and this puts you in a lot better position to at, at least uh, reach that goal um, and go from there. Like, I, I think, again, if you're, if you're top eight, it goes a long way. You know, even if seven and eight, you've got to play a play-in game, uh, you know, there's a huge advantage of being seven, eight as opposed to nine, ten. You know, just having to only win one of those games make a difference. Knowing that you got to get, get one of those at home makes a difference. So at least to be in that position is great. If you're sixth, if you're able to stay above Miami, Orlando, or if, or if New York or Cleveland falls below you, and you know if one of those other teams makes a makes a leap, uh, in on all of those cases you're in you're in good shape. You know, you put yourself in good position. If you come out of this, if you head into play in the top eight, you're in good shape. If you're in the top six, you're in even better shape. And, uh, you know, they, they really came through this in a pretty good position. Um, and I think it's just shown a good formula for winning going forward, too. Yeah, you make the right, you make a great point that you really, I mean, obviously you want to be in the top six, but being in the top eight matters. And they're, again, you know, anything can happen, but they're pretty much locked into a, a top eight spot here if things continue to go the way they have. Just unless um, the bottom falls out, and just right. I, I don't see how it does. Right? Yeah, you're talking in unexpected injuries and all kinds of stuff at that point. But you mentioned Siakam. Obviously, our last podcast was all about him after the the night that they traded for him. Um, you know, they lost the first three games with him. So again, uh, you know, you, you ignored my uh, my uh, my orders to write a story about how they had to retrade him. Um, and it seems like it might work out. Uh, you touched on it already, but what have, what have you seen from him and what he brings to the team and what kind of difference does he make for, uh, since he's joined the Pacers? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the 
the bo- the fact that he makes an impact on both ends, I think, is is sort of the biggest thing that stands out. So, I mean, I think you you look at this two different ways. I mean, first off, uh, you start on defense just because they've been so bad there, um, and you know that they uh, certainly started getting a lot better after they made the decision to switch up the lineup uh, on for the December 26 game against the Rockets when they moved Jalen Smith into the starting lineup at the four and moved Neesmith up to the three. Uh, you know that changed things to start with, um, but even then you were kind of had a little bit of a risky proposition there because, you know, Smith had really been playing a lot of five. I think he was doing okay at the four, you know, he's doing pretty good work there considering, but you know, the kind of players that you really deal with now at the four are just such good athletes. And he's a little bit stiff for that position. Um, you know, again, has shot the ball really well. has been really good on offense. I think it, you know, was working pretty hard at, you know, being good at that spot. But I think you really want somebody that really fit it, you know, across the board. You know, somebody that's um, that, that's got the kind of, you know, like, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, it, like, athleticism is it, but it's not all of it. It's bendability, I guess. And and Siakam's got that. You know, like, he's got a lot of length. He can really get down and stay down uh, in a defensive position. And so he can really guard sort of horizontally and vertically um, the guys that you need to deal with. You know, the LeBrons, the Giannis's, you know, the the Ramps. Um, you know, those type of guys that are starting to, be, that are becoming the standard, you know, at the power forward position that are less, you know, kind of big muscled up dudes, uh, that are just there to, you know, screen and rebound and all that kind of stuff. But guys who are real, you know, three level scorers who can shoot threes and beat you off the bounce and get to the rim and all that kind of stuff. You know, those are the guys that have really been killing them all year. Um, and he gives them somebody that's just way better than anybody else they've had to be able to defend that. And then again, everybody else gets to move into position. And so far, this is just a much better defensive team when you can put him at the four and go from there. Um, and just, just all, all the other pieces seems to seem to fit in pretty well. You know, Neesmith at the three again is a big deal because he is a really good defender who has had, you know, just has just taken the, you know, uh, you know, gotten the short straw almost every game of just having to defend somebody that's just above his weight class. And you're just asking to, to stand in the way of the movement train as best as you can. Um, and so finally he gets to guard people that he can actually, you know, make an impact against. And I mean, even Booker, I thought he did a really good job. Uh, you know, Booker was still going off and I think he still scored 31 against him, but you know, Neesmith gets, you know, the big stop at the end of the game to win that game. Um, and I thought it just did a lot of work to make him work over the last three quarters after he just went off in the first. Um, so that I think was a big deal, you know, offensively, I, think you know again Siakam just he can create shots and and score in in ways that are like just really sustainable I mean like they just haven't had a guy like everybody on the team can score and everybody on the team has scored but I think you know for a guy they all need something to go really right for them to get 20 you know like a lot of those guys can get 10 to 15 on a given night but like you need somebody else to get you 20 to 25 on on like if you have to um and it, it requires the ability to get to certain shots, you know, and you know, the ability to play through certain things. You know, you've got to be able to score in the mid-range, you know, like where if you're driving downhill and somebody cuts you off, you've got to be able to pull up where you are and shoot and score. And Siakam can do that. Um, you've got to be able to hit threes. You've got to be able to get to the rim. Um, but, you know, in the middle of that, you like when someone wants to stop you from where you're going, you got to be able to stop stop where you are, pull up, and shoot the basketball and make it and be able to get over somebody um, and score. And Siakam can do those kinds of things. He is a guy that can get you that, – that is that like his floor is like 15, you know, and he's going to get – you know, he's going to have nights where he gets you 20, some nights when he gets you 25, some nights when he gets you 31. Um, and, you know, that's what he's done in this stretch is just had some, you know, big, huge nights. Uh, and so, you know, he can handle, he can pass. 
Um, you know, I mean, like he can be your six foot eight point guard if you need him to be. You know, if you need him to bring the ball up, if you need him to run the offense, uh, and if you need him to be the guy that just gets the ball, you know, gets himself an isolate isolation situation, attacks that guy and gets to the rim. Uh, he can do all those things, but there's just he just has an additional capacity uh, as an o- overall offensive player that a lot of these guys just do not have. And so, you know, like he's capable of triple doubles, he's capable of getting thirty, he's capable of forty or even fifty on a given night if he has to. Um, and so that's you know something they really needed. They needed a true number two uh, to play with Halliburton. Then a guy that you know can that Halliburton can turn into a forty fifty point guy on a given night. Um, and so he is those things. And so it's just like, there are just so many pieces that he makes fall into place. Um, and, and then he's just a really good player himself. And so he, he's just added just a lot of capacity for this group that wasn't there before they got him. Yeah. I think you make a great point. And we talked a little bit about the potential for this, uh, the day of the trade, but, uh, I mean, it does, everything fits better now. I mean, that was the problem. Mm-hmm. This team, we've talked about it all year is that, you got a bunch of nice players, but they don't necessarily, and then when I say fit, it's not even, um, I mean, attitude's not an issue and it's not, sure. you know, that kind of thing. It's just all of a sudden you have an actual NBA power forward and that makes a huge difference in how other people, you know, you slide people around and all of a sudden everything fits just better. Um, and mm. it seems like it's really going to make a impact, uh, no matter what I said after they started 0 3 with him. Um, yeah. so, uh, let's talk one more thing about Halliburton. The, uh, just changing gears is the contract, uh, with the new NBA contract rules, you need to play in 65 games to be eligible for the awards. I think basically all the awards it might, there might be a few exceptions. Um, and then you have on top of that, if you get some of these awards, you can get paid a whole lot more money, um, mm-hmm. which where Tyrese Halliburton finds himself. Uh, I just sort of break down what the specifics are of that, and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, what Halliburton said uh, today at practice on it. Yeah, yeah, and I didn't realize this. I thought it was the opposite, that you had to um, – that if he got All-NBA at any year that he could unlock it. Uh, he's got to get All-NBA this year to unlock the whole of that contract. Or a previous um, so, year, which he hasn't done. So Right, exactly. So yeah. he's basically – he's got $54.1 million on the line. You know, I think it's he's he can make up to 260 if he's all NBA this year. If he's not all NBA this year, then it's uh, it's like 206. So like, which again, cry no tears for Tyrese Halliburton. He's still going to make 35 million next year if he doesn't, uh, you know, if he doesn't make all NBA. But it goes up dramatically. Um, you know, it's, can, it's, it's 10 million dollars a year, right? I mean, it's five percent of the cap. So but it's, it's I mean, fifty million extra if he yeah gets ultimately all it ends up being fifty million extra. It's not each year ten million, right? But it but but it averages out to ten million, right? It averages and, out again, to ten million. Yeah, yeah. I, let's like, as you said, let's not. No one needs to feel sorry for Tyrese Halliburton for making thirty five million dollars. But ten right. million dollars a year is a lot of money. I don't it's care a lot of money. Fifty more fifty four million dollars is a lot of money. And to <laughs> you know, and he was we we asked him about it today, and he was very uh, he was diplomatic. Up to a point <laughs> until yeah. he just said, this is a stupid rule. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's like, obviously you, you see where it comes from, you know, certainly the, um, the, the logic underpinning the idea makes a lot of sense. Cause it's like, okay, like how do you incentivize, um, guys to play as much, many games as they can. And, you know, we've, we've certainly, it, it's been a discussion that's been particularly, um, uh, resonant, I think, uh, in Indianapolis, because I mean, I think the, you know, as a, 
um, place that only gets a, a team that's only on national TV was only supposed to be on national TV once this year, ended up three more times because of the in-season in tournament. But, you know, Tuesday night was going to be their first TNT game. Uh, you know, you obviously deal with the fact that, like, if you're not on national TV and you are in a comparatively smaller market by NBA standards, uh, it tends to be the sort of game that people circle as an opportunity for load management. And it's happened in the past. Now, it hasn't happened as much as I think fans think it does. Um, you know, like there, there, it, while it happened on a couple of cases, I know Durant, uh, you know, was, I think Durant and Irving and several guys from Brooklyn sat out last year and they, you know, zombie Brooklyn team still beat the paces up pretty good in that <laughs> game. Uh, as I recall, we had a whole discussion beforehand about whether this was okay and, you know, how fans were, you know, not getting their money's worth. And then Brooklyn showed up and just, you know, the, the guys that were, pulled up uh, into service, had no problem pushing, you know, the paces around. Like, you know, I think that was Markeith Morris looked like he was the old guy at the Y just tossing away young kids and being like, I am grabbing all these rebounds, you know, young whippersnappers. Um, and, you know, I, I think there is a sense certainly among Indiana fans that this happens more in Indianapolis than it does. Um, but, you know, I think the overall idea of the league has been to try to make everything more, uh, you know, like play every day kind of deal that, that, that it's, you know, un understandable that from time to time you take games off, that injuries are a real thing and whatnot, but let's not do this load management thing where guys just miss games just to take a day off. Um, and so I, you get the general concept of where this comes from, especially when we're talking about road games and how some of these guys are just, you know, absolute superstars. And if you want to take your 10 year old to a game, you know, to see Steph Curry because he only comes once a year or LeBron James because he only comes once a year, you don't want to buy that ticket and show up at that game and he doesn't play. Um, you know, that's kind of an understandable concept. But, you know, in this case, you've got a guy like Tyrese Halliburton who's trying to play every night, wants to play every night, um, and has a real legitimate hamstring injury. And now he has to decide going forward, you know, he has to decide between $54.1 million that could be on the table and the future health of his hamstring. And it's sort of like, and, and how much of a problem that could be. And if that could end up costing him long term, because, you know, after this, he's got, you know, he'll be 28 or, uh, I guess 29, um, when this contract is up. Um, and then that's when he's open for a true supermax who can get you up at 35%. So certainly he'll want to have made an all NBA team by then and will want to be worth it to somebody for them to give him, um, you know, uh, 35% of the cap for the next five years, you know, leading into his age 35 year, you know, like that, that matters to him too. Like he's got to think about this 54 million, but then he's got to think about the next 54 million. And it's probably more than that of what it's going to be by the time we're talking about 20, 28, 29, 20, 30, you know, and what the cap is going to be at that point and what it's going to mean to get 35% of that cap. Um, so, you know, like tying awards to money to this kind of money you know, uh, it is getting kind of wild and then putting a hard cap on the amount of games you have to play and not leaving open for the circumstances of you might actually be hurt, um, you know, is kind of a tough deal. Um, and so I think there's something for season-ending injuries. You have to play a fewer number of games if you have one. Um, and, but it's like if you get one that requires you to sit out for two to three weeks or even a month um, in January, should you be penalized as if you were blowing games off? Um, is that really fair? Ricardo pointed out, this guy played in the in-season tournament finals. Like this was your, you know, um, you know, marquee event that you brought up and you asked everybody to, to, you know, throw in for. And, you know, this guy was arguably the most thrilling player in it. Um, and he's not going to get the benefit of the doubt if he misses 18 games. You know, is that fair? 
Um, and so, you know, like, again, it's one thing if you miss all NBA team when you're in your third year of your, you know, 30% contract, um, and you're going to get the money anyway, it's different when you're 24 and, you know, this is the yay or nay season. You either make it this year or you miss out on a lot of money, you know, like, is that, is any of that fair? And it's, it's a lot of, um, you know, obviously we're just dealing with some very subjective requirements that, that move a whole lot of cash, uh, you know, and that just seems like a, a weird circumstance to begin with. I have to think that they'll change this and maybe allow you to do it. Um, like if he were to make all NBA next year, he would get that bump or something like that. Although I'm not even sure that's, that's, you know, fair. I don't, again, I don't know if right. fair is the right word when we're talking 35 to, to $45 million. But I mean, the other thing that really oh, jumps out to me is the load management stuff. It's a lot. Some of it is coming from the teams. I mean, the teams sure. want their guys to to sit out because they think it helps them not get injured later on. I have never seen, and I don't think any data exists out there that says load management even actually works. So that's mm. another factor in this. But but yeah, I mean, it's nuts that you could actually have Tyrese Halliburton saying, "I got to play in this game, even though I'm not a hundred percent, because I got to hit this arbitrary number," and. As you say, he could hurt himself worse, and that hurts the team. I mean, it just seems like there's going to be some kind of solution to this uh, in some fashion in the offseason. Although, I, I, at the same time, I don't – I mean, I appreciate what the NBA is doing. You know, you shouldn't have guys sitting out for no reason. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, but, there, but it, it's just such a squishy thing on all sides. Uh, but it mm-hmm. sure feels like something's going to change uh, next year. Although maybe if Halliburton plays the rest of the way and it doesn't end up being an issue – you know, maybe it won't change, but uh, but do you think there's any? What, what do you think the odds are that they do something different uh, with this tweak, this rule? I mean, I'm sure there will be something. I'm sure there'll be a tweak. I mean, like I, you know, it, like there's less money on the line here, but you know, Joel Embiid is getting close to it. You know, I mean, he's missed 11, so he's got I think seven more that he can miss. He's the reigning MVP and he's leading the league in scoring per game. Um, so it's like if if the if you end up if Joel Embiid plays 60 games and is ineligible for MVP and is ineligible for all NBA, um, is that going to change things? You know, and obviously, yeah. I mean, like, I'm probably going to vote for Joker. You know, if I've got a vote and I have no idea if I'm going to get a vote, but, um, you know, I'd vote for Joker anyway because um, I just think he's awesome. But, you know, all the same, it, you know, like, it's certainly legitimate to, you know, give your vote to MB because he's amazing. Um, and so it's like if he gets 60 and he's averaging 36 a game for 60 games and, okay. he, and he's off – the you know he's he's out of the MVP ballot balloting he's off all NBA you know like again like he's still making forty seven million this year and he'll make fifty one million next year um, so you know again he doesn't lose any cash for that but all the same like it, you know we're talking about MVP awards and things that are sort of legacy uh, you know deals for guys in the long term so when you're getting to that extent you're you're taking away serious you know sort of individual awards. Um, you know, is, is that going to make any sense? I mean, is the number too high? I mean, I think that's at the very least, um, I would say that, you know, 65 might be a bit much, you know, because not because asking guys to play 65 is too many games. It's because it doesn't take much to get you down there with a real injury. Yeah, you know, that's fair. I mean, does, yeah, I mean, to me, once you get past 65, you are getting to the point of, are these guys playing enough for the fans and all that yeah, stuff? But, yeah, but, I mean, that, that's fair. Right. And, and it's mean, just like, do, do you even have, like, a full season? Like, I mean, like, I mean, I always think, you know, I think that you and I are probably both baseball guys first, you know, in terms of, like, our fanship. Um, you know, like, 
would you feel comfortable giving MVP to a guy who played 81? You know, like that feels too small. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. so if you're down in the 40s, you know, like obviously, you know, basketball thinks in terms of averages where baseball thinks in terms of, you know, uh, round counting numbers. Um, and so like it, 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 it feels different because you're thinking, okay, well, you know, 50 home runs versus, you know, 30 or whatever. You're not thinking of home runs per game, um, or anything like that. Um, whereas, you know, you look at the points per game, you look at 36 per game as opposed to how many total points he had all year. Um, but you know, if, if you're only playing half a year, like I get removing a guy. Um, but like, you know, it, it's just this guy, Halliburton has not been out super long, you know, and he's already on the brink. You're like we're, we're talking what three weeks, you know, I, I, right. three weeks today is when he like is when he's, you know, strained the hamstring. So a three week injury is enough to put you on the brink. You know, that's, that's just not enough leeway. And for yeah. a hamstring, which could keep you out for a week or it could keep you out right. for, for two months, three months. So right. there's, there's that. A one month injury shouldn't remove you from consideration. You know, I, I think that's the thing. I, I think that's what's been failed to calibrate. If you skipped 17 games for load management, I get your point. You know, I, I get the yeah. NBA's point from that. But, you know, you don't have to have a devastating injury to be removed from consideration for this thing. You know, I, I, I just think a, a three-week deal shouldn't be enough to start making you wonder, oh, my God, you know, do I have to risk the, the risk of my – the health of my future hamstring and keep playing? Because fifty more four million dollars is on the line, you know that's I think where it's got to be tweaked. If you if you move it down to fifty fifty five, you know then you're probably talking something more manageable, um, and and that's less of a high standard. Again, like I don't think it's too high of a standard to ask guys to play sixty five games if they're healthy, but all it takes is you know one, me, you know medium injury, um, and you're asking yourself about generational dollars, and that's insane. Uh, let's wrap it up with a quick look at uh, trade deadlines coming up. Obviously, the Pacers have made their big deal with Pascal Siakam. They they certainly could make another deal. They've got the assets to do it. Um, do you think? I mean, how uh, any uh, any sense of what they might want? What any thoughts of what they might go at? You know, that they will go after uh, another player. What are your thoughts as the trade deadline? Uh, uh, you know, it's less than two weeks away. I feel like it just hasn't shaken out yet enough to really see an obvious target, you know, and, and I think part of it is, and that's true on both sides, I think, in terms of just what's going to be available um, and, you know, what teams are, are, are getting ready to get out of it um, and what they need, um, you know, and, and so I think they're still trying to figure out, okay, like what, you know, where do they have a hole with Siakam? You know, do, do they still have one? Is there still something they're missing? Um, and, you know, I think there are still some teams that aren't sure whether or not they're ready to break up. You know, like, I think Brooklyn, for instance, you know, in that you, you, you presume Atlanta does and is probably going to move Murray. You know, is are the, are the Bulls ready to call it? You know, are, are there some like DeRozan or Levine going to be, um, you know, on the market? And even if the Pacers aren't interested in those type of guys, you know, do they want someone else? that they might have that's, that's lesser, you know, like a, it sounds like an Alex Caruso is a no, that wouldn't be, a, you know, that'd be a nice guy to have just to get another defensive base, um, you know, in there, even though I'm not sure kind of where he fits positionally when you've got Nemhard and McCall, as you've already finding minutes for, you know, I think, you know, they, it, it probably makes sense to kind of make a consolidational trade um, just because on some, on one hand you have too many guys that are at the same level and you could probably, 
Um, if you get somebody that's maybe a little bit better than both of them so that you're not just trying to find the minutes for, you know, really, what are they, I mean, almost the 13 guys, you know, like have, um, you know, a, a reason to demand minutes. I mean, you're talking about, you know, all three point guards, you know, you're talking about, you know, all, you know, all the wings, you know, uh, Buddy, Matherin, Shepard, you know, Neesmith all have, you know, uh, a, a claim that they deserve to play. Jarris Walker has a claim that he deserves to play. Obi Toppin, you know, uh, Jackson Smith, as well as you know, obviously as well as Turner, um, you know, they're really the only guy out there that's just there to you know for leadership purposes and to stand in there when you need him is James Johnson. I mean, like he's the only guy out there that that doesn't have a need for minutes um, in terms of his development. Um, so everybody else um, has been good enough to deserve to play um, and has reason to. Like even if you view Shepard and Walker as a little bit behind, I mean, they're obviously rookies, so you got to get those guys on the floor so they can develop. Um, so they're, they're in a weird place and it's like, okay, how do you make it make sense for the short term and the long term? It might make sense to move a couple guys to get one, um, you know, just to clear things out a little bit for you and maybe get a guy who's a little bit better. But I can't look at that and say right now, okay, they have a whole at X position or Y position. You know, they, they certainly have starters they can trust one through five. You know, they have backup depth. They probably have more depth than anybody. Um, so there's not, there, there's not an obvious move on the board. Uh, but I think it's one of those deals where you could see a trade and you'd be like, okay, I get how that makes sense. You know, like if, if they put, if they package top in and healed together for the purpose of just clearing out some space, um, you know, at those positions and, you know, giving those guys, you know, opportunities and obviously moving on, they're both expiring contracts at this point. Um, you know, certainly they could choose to extend either, you know, either of them or both of them if they wanted to. Um, but they can move each of those guys to get, you know, one guy that they feel like kind of better fits, you know, exactly what they need. Um, and, you know, then, then just have a smaller rotation by not having to try to fit 11, 12, 13 players into, into the, uh, into the rotation. So, you know, it's not obvious to me. I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, I've, I've seen people throw Mikhail Bridges, you know, and, and, and guys from Brooklyn. And I'm like, you know, I, I mean, if you can get Mikhail Bridges, that's <laughs> awesome. I mean, like, you see, you know, if, if you can get Mikhail Bridges, great. Um, but, you know, I don't know if Brooklyn's ready to, to, to dump him and, you know, what they'd want for him. And if that's enough, but, you know, like, I mean, certainly if he's on the market for anything that you can give up, you know, I, I think you take him, obviously, you know, Halliburton and Siakam are off and I would presume they're not going to move Matherin. But after that, I, I get going after a player like that. If you can, you know, your core going forward is Halliburton and Bridges and Siakam, you're in pretty good shape. Um, but, you know, I don't know. There's there's nothing obvious to me right now. Like, where last year was very clear they needed to go after a power forward. They needed something there, um, whether it was at the deadline or in free agency. They needed to get better there. Now they have Siakam. I don't think there's an obvious place where you could say, well, they've got this hole that they desperately need. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, Toppin, I, I mean, I, I, they, I, they don't really need, quote-unquote, Toppin now. To his mm-hmm. credit, he still played really well. And, I mean, Rick Carlisle has gone out of his way to talk about how great um, Toppin's approach and attitude has been, which is commendable. I mean, he came here to get sure. a chance to play because he was stuck behind Julius Randle. And then mm-hmm. they, they, they stick, uh, Pascal Siakam in front of you, but he's shown what he can do. And, uh, if it's not, Indiana's not the place for him, he'll get a shot right. somewhere else next year. So, uh, good that he can see the big picture and all because I don't, wouldn't think the Pacers are, are keeping him around, um, next year if he doesn't want to be here. But, but yeah, I mean, you almost say you could trade Heald because of all of the stuff at the beginning of the year. But what would you need in place of Heald? I mean, basically a really, really good volume three-point shooter. 
So Which is what so Buddy Hill is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So training Buddy Hill doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you could. I mean, if you can, and I don't even know who that would be. Who's a, you know, who's a uh, a version of Buddy Hield who's uh, in a different situation career-wise that you could bring in? But I could see doing that. But yeah, and I mean, yeah, obviously you take Mikhail Bridges. You probably got to send Naismith out if you're going to make that uh, make that deal. Um, but that would be great. But that, yeah, that you know, you also hear, you know, Royce O'Neal is a name you hear thrown around, which. Royce O'Neal's a nice ball player, a little bit of everything, Good, mm-hmm. really good defensive player, so certainly they could use that. But at the same time, I just described, uh, you know, Aaron Naismith, and I don't right. think Naismith's better. So um, yeah. so, so why would, well, where, where are you going to play uh, Royce O'Neal? So, um, so, yeah, no, it's an interesting thing. And, again, just a credit to Kevin Pritchard for, for making the move for Siakam. I know some people – um, or critical of the deal. I'm really confused by the people who think uh, Toronto got the better end of the deal because they got something for Siakam. Um, I just don't – I mean, I, I, I'm not saying – I mean, I can understand why you would think it was a good trade for Toronto, but I don't understand how you could think Toronto came out ahead in the trade necessarily. Um, now, no. if they trade Bruce Brown for something real, then I'll I'll change my mind. You know, I get it. You don't want to pay. You know, are they going to be paying Pascal Siakam fifty million dollars a year when he's thirty-five? That's not great. But again, as we said last podcast, we don't need to go into it again. It's your team. If you, this, if the Pacers are your team, you want them to want it, and this is right. them wanting it. Um, so, uh, yeah. you know, the trade really has set them up well for the rest of the year. The flip side of that, of course, is that they're in sixth place in the East. They're probably not a top three contender, even though. They've owned Milwaukee and they just beat the Sixers, um, but uh, but certainly an interesting. Uh, it'll be interesting, uh, whatever it is, ten days to the trade deadline and see if they will do make another move. Um, all right, well that is the from way downtown podcast. Dustin will be in Boston and New York uh, on Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, obviously, uh, big uh, it's, I should say big games, interesting games, um, mm-hmm. uh, in, for the team just to see how they do against the Celtics. Even more so, I think, against the Knicks. Uh, Julius Randle is out. Uh, interestingly enough, I believe the uh, the, the, the Woj uh, tweet on Randle used the phrase, weeks, not months, uh, yes, on, uh, on Randle's <laughs> injury. That means he will certainly miss the Pacers game. But uh, uh, anything else you want to say to wrap it up? Yeah, no, that's it. Like I said, I, I do, to your point, I, I think uh, I have a hard time imagining who thinks Toronto got the best of this. I mean, I still, um, I, I get the, the the concern about, um, you know, whether he's going to resign and, and how it could easily end up being a rental. It certainly could. You know, I, I as much as Siakam seems happy so far, he hasn't gone to say, like, I'm definitely going to sign a long-term contract extension. Um, you know, and we, we have, we have, you know, I've asked it directly, and then we've played around that a couple more times since. Um, but still, I mean, I think, you know, for Bruce Brown, Jordan Orr, and three first-round picks, two of them coming in a draft that I think everybody views as, as lacking um, in general, uh, I just I just don't see how they look at this five years from now and, and think they got the worst end of the deal. All right. Well, appreciate it, Dustin. Uh, everybody, uh, go to com. Most read story on the website right now is what we just talked about with – Halliburton's contract, so check that out. And uh, as I said, Dustin will be on the road with the team. Uh, so uh, please go to IndyStar.com to see uh, what we are writing about him. Thank you for listening.